Good morning. I think I saw Jehu driving down King Street the other day. <laughs> Maybe it was one of you. <laughs> Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the joy of our fellowship together and for the hope of what lies before us. Father, as we turn our attention to your word, you know the things that have been going on for each one of us this morning and throughout this week. Uh, we pray that you might so enable us to concentrate on your word that we might hear what you have to say and live as your faithful people. Uh, please enable me to speak your word truly and please enable us to hear your word faithfully. For this we ask of you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, how precious to you is the great biblical doctrine of election? It's a part of Christian teaching that some Christians find hard to stomach. That God should choose whom he will save and whom he will not. Whom he will rescue from their sin and whom he will leave in their sin. It stands in stark contrast to something that we naturally hold dear that we have a right to shape the course of our own lives and that ultimately our decisions determine our future. But election, predestination, is a truth about God and his dealings with his creation that is writ large throughout the entire Bible, Old Testament and New. It's part of God's good word to us. It teaches us that ultimately it is God's decision that determines our future. He is God and we are his creatures. He knows all things, even the secrets of our hearts, and out of grace, pure grace, total unmerited favour, he chooses men and women like you and me to be his. Our choice to follow Jesus flows out of his choice to have us as his own. We respond to Jesus' free invitation to come only to find that God chose us before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now, it's a great comfort to know that, isn't it? It's a wonderful reassurance that my salvation does not rest on something as flimsy as my will but on his gloriously powerful and effective will. Paul wrote to Timothy, the Lord knows those who are his. And Jesus prayed about those whom the Father had given him from out of the world. It's also a tremendously liberating truth. Knowing everything about me, he still chose me. I don't have to earn his favour. The Reformation Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cranmer, wrote of how this great biblical truth and the godly consideration of it is full of sweet, pleasant and unspeakable comfort to godly persons. So have you considered how precious this truth is when you face the darkest hours? How comforting election can be when everything looks dark and black? This week we've been face to face with the horrors of war, haven't we? None of us knows where the conflict between Russia and Ukraine will head, who else will be involved and how long it will take them to become involved. But right now the suffering is intense. 
and horrendous, and everyone seems to be on edge. At the same time, some of our brothers and sisters in parts of Africa and China, and even in some places in the Western Europe, are suffering persecution of various kinds. And then there are the floods, where some rivers have broken their banks for the second time in a year and people have lost everything. Now, there are good things happening in our world too. It's not all doom and gloom. But just at the moment, there is plenty of doom and gloom, isn't there? What value does election have in the midst of that? Well, this week, as I turned again to Matthew's Gospel, uh, preparing to continue through Matthew 24, knowing that I was returning to the description of the terrors and difficulties in the period between Jesus' ascension and his return, I was struck by three references to the elect. Two of those in particular provide us with some real comfort in the midst of distress, and they remind us of things that we need to hold on to in just uh, at a moment like this. So would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 24 and verse 15? And as I read Jesus' words, see if you can spot what I mean. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken about by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. He who's on the roof not go down to get the things from his house. He who's in the field not return to collect his cloak. Woe to those who are pregnant and those nursing young children in those days. Pray that your flight might not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for then there'll be great tribulation, which has not been from the beginning of the world till now and will most definitely not be again. And if those days had not been shortened, no flesh would have been saved. But because of the elect, those days will be shortened. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe them. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and they will do great signs and wonders so that they might deceive, if it were possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you beforehand. If they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, don't go out. Or look, he's in the inner room, don't believe them. For just as lightning comes from the east and stretches to the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Suddenly, after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the heavens and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and much glory. And he will send his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree, learn the lesson. When the branch becomes tender and it produces leaves, you know summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that he is near at the gates. Truly I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all these things come to be. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will certainly not pass away. We're back in Jesus' Olivet Discourse, the last of the five great discourses in Matthew's Gospel, which stretches from verse 4 of Matthew 24 right through to the end of Matthew 25. It's the last block of sustained teaching that Jesus would give his disciples in Matthew's account. 
And it's all about the future. What would happen in the years between his departure and his return? In some ways, it's an extended answer to the disciples' question in verse 3. Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the completion of the age? Now, I don't know whether the disciples regretted asking that question. You see, the answer they received did not speak of the onward march of glory, of one success after another, until they realised the kingdom of heaven on earth. No, instead it was one calamity after another. The loss of things held dear, the rupture of relationships, the trembling of the earth itself. The period between Jesus' departure and his return was going to be a hard time, a rough time, especially for those who identify with him. Jesus used the image of birth pains, but he stressed the things he was talking about were just the beginning. But Jesus told them these things ahead of time in order to prepare them for what was to come so that they would not be distracted or deceived or alarmed, but would endure to the end. In the verses I've just read, Jesus continues to speak about these things, the characteristics of the age between his departure and his return. First, he'll speak about one particular period of distress, and then he'll speak about the public and glorious nature of his return. And in both instances, he will speak of the elect and God's continuing concern for them. So firstly, unparalleled distress shortened because of the elect. As Jesus continued in the passage I've just read, he first narrowed in on one particularly tough time. Of all the tough times between his departure and his return, one particularly tough time, one particularly sharp birth pain, the desecration and destruction of Jerusalem. What he had to say was all very precise and it would all play out within 40 years of his resurrection. A blasphemous assault upon the holy place, a destruction and terror descending so frighteningly quick you just have to run, a great tribulation. In fact, Jesus spoke of it being so terrible that it would surpass anything prior to this and afterwards. As I said, it all played out within, 70, within 40 years in AD 70. The Roman general Titus, operating under the orders of his father, Emperor Vespasian, did attack Jerusalem. He did desecrate the temple and he did execute a program of terror. It was devastating. But was it really something that surpassed in terror everything before and everything since? What about those terrible years when the Babylonians sacked Jerusalem? What about the Holocaust, when more than six million European Jews lost their lives? In sheer numbers, those events certainly dwarfed the numbers lost in AD 70. But in 587 BC, there were some who survived, who escaped from Jerusalem. In the 1930s and 1940s, though the Nazis' intention was most certainly to exterminate all Jews, some escaped. Yet, as Don Carson points out, in AD 70, no one escaped. 
Sure, some Christians had got out early and fled to Pella across the Jordan, but when the attack was launched and the temple was defiled, it was a bloodbath. Josephus wrote of more than a million people being killed, of forced cannibalism, and the end of Jewish religious life centred in Jerusalem. When some fled to Masada, they were followed, a siege was mounted, none would be allowed to escape, and the entire body of refugees suicided. The dimensions of the brutality, given the size of the city at the time, were breathtaking. An attempt to blot out from all memory an entire city and with such savagery. And it's all intensified, of course, by the fact that this was God's city. It was a city over which Jesus had issued his lament at the end of Matthew 23. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How many times I wanted to gather your children as a hen gathers her chicks under the wings and you were not willing. Behold, your house is left as a desert to you. It was the city singled out by the God who made every city to be his own. It was the city in whose streets walked the Son of God. Yet in what was a devastatingly short period, it was wiped out. And the only thing that stopped it being worse, the only thing that prevented this from engulfing more and more people, indeed all flesh, Men, women, children, animals would be God's determination to protect the elect. See verse 22. If those days had not been shortened, no flesh would have been saved. But because of the elect, those days will be shortened. Now, we could spend ages trying to precisely identify the abomination that causes desolation, but it's all in Daniel, let the reader understand. (laughs) Or in measuring the scale of the catastrophe and the astonishing speed at which it came. No time to grab the photo album or the children's toys, just run. But the really interesting thing is this. Because of the elect, those days will be shortened. The terrifying judgment upon Jerusalem was entirely in keeping with the horror of her sin. And yet because of the elect, those days will be shortened. John Calvin, the great Genevan reformer, is one of the few who's meditated upon this phrase at length. If God had not set a limit, Calvin wrote, the Jews would utterly perish till not a single one was left. Yes, the city was devastated, and its population massacred, but this did not stretch out further to encompass the entire nation. Why? Because of the elect. God will not abandon his elect. He will not let them be swallowed up when judgment falls. He didn't even then, even in the midst of the bloodbath of AD 70. As Calvin concluded, wonderful comfort is given to the elect that God will never give such free reign to his anger as to forget their safety. He will not let any of them be lost. And that's what we need to hear when it seems like the world is spinning out of control. Yes, this is what the world is like in the last days. Don't expect it to end quickly. 
Be on your guard, be wise, but remember the exercise of God's judgment, judgment is constrained by one thing, his determination to preserve his elect. It's often been remarked that uh, Jesus does not promise that the tribulation will be averted because of the elect. Rather, it will be shortened because of the elect. It's a salvation in tribulation, in the midst of it, rather than a salvation from tribulation. Jesus concentrated on the, on the fall of Jerusalem as something that would happen within the lifetime of his disciples. They'd asked about Jerusalem and in their lifetime it would fall. But more than that, because of the ferocity of the attack and because of the identity of this city as the city of David, the holy city, the place set apart by God, this is a particularly sharp birth pain, an intense focus of what would characterise all the last days as hatred and violence and persecution will be directed against the people of God, the disciples of Christ, just as it was directed against him. Unparalleled distress that calls for one thing, be alert and trust. And in Jerusalem in AD 70, it was run. It'd be harder to do that if you're pregnant or nursing an infant or if you're fighting winter weather or hindered by Sabbath regulations, but this unparalleled distress will be shortened because of the elect. But Jesus had more to say. And so secondly, the coming of the Son of Man, gathering the elect. For a moment, the wide-angle lens taking, taking in the whole of the last days had been replaced with a sharper focus on one momentous incident, the end of Jerusalem. From that moment on, Jerusalem would cease to have a special role in God's purposes. But now the wide-angle lens is back again and we're being told about the coming of the Son of Man. The background here, just like the abomination of desolation in the earlier verses, is found in the book of Daniel. Coming in the clouds, in glory, the execution of God's purposes, his rule, his authority. Once again, Jesus warned his disciples about attempts to deceive them. False Christs, false prophets, like Alan John Miller in Queensland or David Shaler in Britain or Vizarian in Russia, who all claim to be the reincarnation of Jesus of Nazareth. Or the charlatans who know where Christ is to be found. I'll show you if you like. He's in a remote place, come and see. He's found in a secret place, come and see. These people prey on the gullible and sometimes also on the pious. Their goal, Jesus said, is to entice the elect to lead them astray, if that were possible. The problem is that in each case, the return of Jesus is localised and mediated. But the real thing won't be like that at all. It will be public. It will be recognisable. It won't require you to travel to a remote place or retreat into some inner sanctum. When Jesus does return, you won't be able to miss it. Like lightning arced across the sky accessible to everyone, easily recognised. 
You won't need anyone to tell you that the Son of Man has come. Vultures don't need to be told where the body is. They're just there already. Jesus used all the great apocalyptic language and images, the sun and moon darkened, the stars falling from the sky, the entire universe appearing to shake. It will be unmissable and on a cosmic scale, not some backstreet secret appearance that you need to be careful not to miss. His coming will carry all the portents of the end, the sky ripped open and the earth shuddering. You won't need someone to tell you that he's returned. All will know. See it there in verse 30? Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and much glory. All the tribes will mourn because their tragic folly will be unmasked and their rejection of the Saviour God has given will be shown for what it is. But what will he do when he returns? What is he coming back to do? Verse 31, with a mighty trumpet he will send his angels and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heaven to another. Once again, our attention is drawn to the elect. The coming of the Son of Man is not just a visit, not just checking in on the planet or something like that. His coming has a purpose and once again, that purpose centres on those he has chosen. The elect, they will be gathered from wherever they've been scattered. The book of Revelation contains a vision of that gathering, you might remember. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's where it's heading. The angels are sent, the elect are gathered, they come around the throne, and God's praise is sung in full voice. You won't miss it when it happens, Jesus told them. But he isn't just coming, he is coming for a purpose, and his purpose involves the elect. The last days from the ascension to the return will be a period of turmoil. We should expect to suffer the exhausting sequence of one catastrophe after another. There will be attempts to deceive and they'll be serious and sophisticated and if it weren't for God's powerful and effective will, they would succeed. But nothing is going to thwart God's intention to have those he's chosen standing around the throne and enjoying the great fulfilment of all God's promises. He didn't let the elect be swallowed up in the judgment that fell on Jerusalem in AD 70. He will keep them even in the midst of the real sophisticated and intense attempts to deceive them. And he will gather them. When the sky has gone black and the heavens themselves seem to be convulsing, his priority will be the gathering of the elect. Jesus' final discourse is not some cheerful after-dinner speech. The news he brings is not all good. It's not going to be up and up, success and success, the triumphal march of the gospel throughout the world. It will be tough going. And no time has been tougher than those days when Jerusalem fell. 
But at no point has God lost sight of the elect. Even for just a minute. He will shorten the terror of Jerusalem because of the elect and he will send his angels to gather the elect when he returns. And so his message to the disciples and to us is to be ready. You'll see all these things. Well, don't forget that they point you to something more important. Be ready. You know that summer's near when you see the fig tree beginning to sprout leaves? Well, learn that lesson. See all this and recognise that he's near. He's at the very gates. The generation of the disciples saw all this. They needed to remember that God will keep his elect safe. But we've seen it too. We know what happened in Jerusalem in AD 70 and we see the convulsions that Jesus was talking about in the world around us right now. Some at a distance and some right up close. Being alert and being ready is the message that we need to hear too. But as well as that, there is this sweet, pleasant and unspeakable comfort. Our Heavenly Father will not let his chosen ones be swallowed up in judgment. And when Jesus returns, he will gather the elect and bring them into the inheritance he has kept for them. And so the biblical teaching of election truly is wonderful, isn't it? Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we have much to give you thanks for. You have provided for us richly, but you have given us your word, and that we rejoice in especially this morning. We thank you that you have called us to be yours, to be holy and blameless before you, that this was done before the foundation of the world and was completely the result of your gracious love. Help us to rejoice in that and be confident in that and so to face life in our world with all its disruption, giving you the glory that is your due for Jesus' sake. Amen.